Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading's on page 750. And it's from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 to 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down. And the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But... When we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Well, a very good evening to you all. Let's pray again, just one more last time, as we keep God's word open and we listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray tonight that you would indeed convict us of who we are. You would convict us of our sin that we would know who you are, we would hear you speak to us, and that we would wonder in the love and compassion and mercy you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Maranatha, come, O Lord. That's from 1 Corinthians, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. Come, O Lord. It was an early church greeting, so they faced great persecution. The Romans required everyone to declare that Caesar was God, and the early Christians refused. They knew who was really God. They knew there was only one true God, one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so the Romans saw them as traitors in the early church. They persecuted them, and they put them to death. And the suffering Christians clung to the knowledge that Jesus would come back 
to reign. And they reminded each other, Jesus was coming back, and the sooner the better. Maranatha, come, come, O Lord. And the church now, still today, cries out in pain as it bleeds and it suffers in a painfully sinful world that hates God. I went to a conference last weekend. I listened to, to a lady speak. They called her Hannah. It wasn't her real name. It was to, used to protect her. She was called, they called her Hannah. She came from North Korea. And Hannah told an achingly sorrowful sto- story. With her husband, her kids, she fled her home in North Korea. And she made it to China. And there, she was taken in by the underground church in China. And where, where she heard, really, for the fir- first time properly the good news about Jesus, the gospel. And very quickly, Hannah and her family became Christians. And now there are lots of details into the story, which we don't have time for tonight. But a sort of quick overview. They were caught then by the secret police in North Korea. They were brought in China, and they were brought back to a North Korean prison camp. Hannah and her husband was forced out of them to to declare that they were indeed Christians and they were beaten so severely that one night she recalled how they were both taken apart and had to confess what they believed. They were beaten and then put in a small cell together that night and they didn't recognize each other. The husband didn't recognize her. She didn't recognize her husband because they were so badly disfigured. Horrendous. Another story um, from the same conference last week, Samson, a Christian leader in India, he told us of a Christian young lady living in an Indian village. The elders of the village, well, they came to the family to arrange a marriage for her. She said she would only marry a Christian. Her parents found her body hanging from a tree the next morning. And the church cries out, come, Lord Jesus, We live in a world that hates God and evil aims to ravage those that trust him. Now, over the next couple of Sunday evenings, we're thinking about Advent as we are indeed in the morning as well. And next week, we'll spend time in Isaiah 65 looking at the wonderful new creations that Christians, the new creation that Christians now await. And tonight, we're looking at a passage that challenges any effort the world makes to sanitize the Christmas season. It brings us truth, hard truth, but also stunningly and shockingly glorious truth. Advent, is a ver- it's a, a version of the Latin word for coming. So the Christian spends Chris- Christmas celebrating the coming of Christ in his incarnation, but also looking ahead in expectation that he will again return to judge. And we are to be ready for it and to live in expectation of it. It reminds the Christian that what they are and what they have now well, is nothing compared to what life will be like with Christ when he returns And that's why Advent is so good for us. The Lord has come. The Lord is coming. And his people wait for him. 
with great anticipation and expectation. And as we come to our passage tonight, well, I'd like to fill you in a bit of what Isaiah reported was going on at the time through, um, through the book of Isaiah. We find out in chapter one, the people, that is God's chosen people, Israel, well, they've forgotten. They've forgotten their God and they've grown dissatisfied. They take God for a fool they patronize him. They patronizingly keep up the, keeping up the appearances of religious devotion. So it's sanctimonious garbage, really. They bow down with a wink to one another. They pray with their, their fingers crossed. They've got their Sunday best on while their lives are full of corruption and oppression. They're a bunch of murderers and thieves that try to impress God as they meet together dressing up nicely, thinking they're saying the right things, but they're living their lives in hatred and malice. Chapter 29, 13, sums it up. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we're given a stark picture in Isaiah of what a world that cares nothing for God, that cares absolutely nothing for their creator, what that world looks like. In chapter three, we have neighbors at war, the young mistreat the old, teen gangs wreak havoc, the rich and the powerful grind the faces of the poor. Chapter 10, the poor have no rights. The widows and orphans serve only as prey. No food to eat, no safe place to sleep. Chapter five, the middle, the upper classes, well, they expand their holdings. House extension after house extension, holiday home after holiday home. They party and drink, and they drink and they party. They congratulate themselves with how clever they think they are. And the leaders, the leaders do nothing. Instead of challenge and reform, well, the religious leaders lead the way in sin. Chapter 20 at verse 8, they get so drunk, their tables are filled with vomit. In chapter 59, we are given a frightful summary of how rotten these people are. The nation is a mess. Murder, lying, evil speech rife. And it affects the heart of every institution. The courts, they're filled with lies and injustice. And then we get to our passage, Isaiah 64. Tonight, Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 3. Now, that is one quite complex Hebrew sentence. One sentence, first three verses. And Isaiah cries out, Why do you still put up with it, Lord? Rip the heavens open, tear them open, and come down. Sort it out. And in fact, the verbs in verse 1 are in the past tense. If you would have just rend the heavens and come down. Why haven't you already come down? It has gotten so bad, so dark. Please, please come. Shake the earth to its core. Tremble the most solid of our foundations, our mountains. Tremble them. Reveal yourself to us. And just as fire blazes through wood and boils water, make all who have had this foolish tenacity to stand against you will make them quake in fear. 
the rich schemers who have abused the poor, the powerful who have raped and pillaged, the arrogant who crush any who get in their way, any religious, any political leader who have led people away from you rather than towards you. Show them who they've dared to stand against. If such a irrepressible, incandescent force would connect with such unclean lips, well, they would burn up immediately. Their icy hearts would break into a roiling boil. And Isaiah continues in verse 3, you've done it before. You've done it before. Please, would you do it again? For the people should not have forgotten you. How their God has revealed himself to them. This word awesome, verse 3, noraot, that's related to fear. This unimaginable power from out of this world. We cannot control it. How could they have forgotten it? How could they have forgotten the one who holds it? And the Bible makes it very clear. His ways are noraot. They aren't to be forgotten. They are awesome. Psalm 106, 21 and 22. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and this word, awesome deeds. By the Red Sea, 2 Samuel 7, 23, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods. This is the terrifyingly majestic God that Isaiah begs, come down, Lord, please come down. But verses four to seven, why should he? Why should he come down? That's the question asked in the central section in verses four to seven. Why should such a God come down to such a people? Or another way of asking the question, who should God come down for? Who deserves to be saved? Verse four, he is the only God through the whole of history since ancient times. There has been no other. No ears can claim to have heard anyone else. No one can say they've seen someone better. It is only the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, who has revealed himself to them. He is in a class by himself. And amidst all the false places the people were turning to, and they were looking elsewhere from political alliances to carved wooden idols, well, the Holy One of Israel is the only one who can save them. He will act, but only on behalf of those who remain loyal to him and do not run off with another. Verse five, you come to the help of those who gladly do right. Those who wait for this God of awesome deeds to save them. They have nowhere else to look and they know it and they wait and they do what's right. They live under the commitment to the covenant life expected of them. Integrity, 
honesty, faithfulness, simplicity, mercy, generosity, self-denial. That's the person that God will come down for. And here comes the shocker. Where is that person? Where is he? Where is she? You see, if Isaiah was to search from house to house, town to town, well, like a Where's Wally book without Wally, he'd find no one. Verse six, no one. No one is innocent. No one. All of us have become like one who is unclean. They are so deeply entrenched into their sinful rejection of God, they have no idea about reality anymore. Even the things they think are, they're doing good are rotten. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Unclean, filthy, shriveled up, swept away by their disgrace. The problem is their sin. Now, how does that, ask, how does that work, you may ask? How can what looks good be accused of being filthy, as in verse 6? Well, it's actually not an uncommon response to the gospel message. People trying to understand, well, actually, I'm not that bad. The gospel, it sounds all very good, but it's not for me. Perhaps better in a local prison where people really have done wrong there. That's where it should be heard. But Isaiah makes it clear that the fundamental effect of sin is defilement in the presence of God who is absolutely clean. You see, that's Isaiah's own personal experience when he encounters God in chapter six towards the start of Isaiah. Woe to me. He gets this vision, this tremendous vision of God. And he says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The first, first 10 chapters of Leviticus, well, their instructions on how the people need to sacrifice. And the next five after that, by no accident, are a list of what is clean and what is unclean. You see, to be clean, to be unclean is to be a stench to he that is clean. So sin here is not a primarily a behavioral dysfunction. No, it's the inward corruption and contamination we have by nature. And it destroys the spirit as disease destroys the body. Now, our behavior is generally much worse than we ourselves can recognize. We're all too self-involved and too self-interested to be able to assess it correctly but it is Israel's uncleanness which is the problem. And thus it bears the fruit of the evil behaviors that we, we can read all the way through Isaiah. And verse seven, these, this chilling, chilling imagery, God hides his face. He hides his face and the people, well, they waste away because of their sin. And tonight as we read this, it's a hard passage as we read it. And if you think that people are better now, that we have learned from our mistakes, we've improved 
our spiritual state over the years? Well, we have too much evidence to to show us otherwise. Government estimates are tens of thousands of people in modern slavery in Britain today. Modern slavery being uh, a definition being exploited and completely controlled by someone else without being able to leave. Justice, have we justice? Well, only 1% of victims of slavery have a chance to see their exploiter brought to justice. The Daily Telegraph reports 20,237 long-term empty homes in London this year. Many of those are mansions bought simply for investment growth, while at the same time, according to Shelter, over 300,000 homeless in the UK last year, 93,000 prisoners, that's set to grow 500 to 1,000 every year into the 2020s. The number of children going into care is on the rise, while those stepping forward to adopt has dramatically declined. None of it makes good reading. The pressure on the NHS, mental health stats, domestic violence, divorce, breakups. People aren't getting better. And these are terrifying symptoms, not unlike the ones you can read here in Isaiah of people whose fundamental problem isn't that they need more investment in education or that they need a better research into social degradation or they simply need more family support services. No, the fundamental problem is sin. It's that we are unclean. Devoid of purpose, without hope, death, the only conclusion. Sin is relentless in its pursuit of misery. And anyone with it in their system, well, verse 7, well, they'll simply waste away. Verses 1 to 3, why haven't you come already, Lord? It's too much for us to bear. Verses 4 to 7, why should you? We are too sinful. And then we come to verses 8 and 9. Because, Lord... Isaiah says, because, Lord, you care for your creation. You see, before the tale of doom ends in sorrow, well, we find that Isaiah knows something very special about God. He knows the character of his maker. He knows that such sinful, unclean people deserve only to be destroyed, but he knows the nature of this God. What is his nature? Well, Father doesn't abandon the kids. You see, he has carefully molded and crafted them. They are evidence of his creative instincts, and he will not give them up. And their only hope, our only hope, is that he will have mercy on us. And verse 9, O Lord, do not remember our sins forever. And as we approach Christmas, well, right down into the dirt. So murder, gang warfare, council estates run by drug barons, parents watching powerlessly as their kids suffer severe mental health issues, cities ravaged by corrupt monetary systems, child abuse, funerals where the children of the disease don't attend because they can't stand to be in the same room as their siblings, Lives ruined by sexual deviance, alcohol addiction, right into this dirt, 
reread the words which will be read publicly at many carol services over the next few weeks, but they'll not be read at the amount that they deserve. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one, the only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the one to whom the prophet Isaiah holds out his one great hope in these verses. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was despised, rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He's the suffering servant. He is also the all-conquering Messiah. Isaiah 63:1. Who is this? robed in splendor, striding forwards in the greatness of his strength. This Savior has come. And he is the one the apostles were actually able to, in the flavor of Isaiah 64, 4, they were actually able to, 1 John 1, hear. They were able to see with their own eyes. They were able to touch him. With their hands. He is the one which we were, are brought into intimate relationship with, intimate fellowship with. He is the mighty God. So, as perhaps some of you wonder to yourselves, how am I going to make it through the next month? There's just too much going on. The office parties you don't enjoy, the family gatherings that go on four days too long, finding gifts for someone that already has got everything that they could think and could get anything else they want for themselves? How do you buy that person a gift? Or more seriously, knowing chemo treatment doesn't stop for Christmas, getting through the pain of seeing the empty chair at the Christmas dinner table as you miss those who you dearly love. Well, to both those who dread and to, to those also who love it, if you are a believer here tonight... You are never, never to forget, not for one millisecond, the awesome works God has done for you. The place his love for you took him to, from the glories and beauty and splendor of heaven to an animal feeding trough, and from an animal feeding trough to a shameful torture and death instrument. That is the awesome work that he's done for you. And we thank and we praise and we worship him. And we do it every single day without fail for the next month and beyond. We remember the depth of the riches of the mercy that we've received. So we'll wake up every morning and we'll perhaps read the Christmas narrative in the Gospels or we'll grab a meditation and read every day something brilliant about why he's come. You thank him from the bottom of your heart for tearing the heavens open. He's torn them apart and he's come down. We contemplate the depth of sin in this world right now And we're amazed that he showed up at all. 
And because he did show up, well, the end of the rottenness, the end of sin is in sight. And we'll spend more time looking at that next week. Now, just as I finish, if you aren't a believer here tonight, well, Isaiah 64 is a terrifying passage if it ended at verse 7. God hiding his face and us wasting away because of our sinful nature. But it doesn't finish there. You see, every single person that is in this building tonight, every single person that walks out of this building tonight, well, we all rightly deserve the full force of God's anger poured out on us. Yet no one needs to leave in fear or despair. Why? Well, it's already been poured out on this Savior King And to be frank, it's the only reason I'll sit through more school nativities last year. I vowed that I wouldn't sit through another one, Um, but I will again. And the only reason is because I know who this king is, to be frank. Jesus Christ is the only reason we're gathered here tonight. He is the only reason why the world, as painful as it is, we're still able to go on. He is the only reason we experience any good at all. And can I urge you with the full enthusiasm of my Northern Irish accent, there is no one else who gets close. There is no one else who gets close to how much he is worth knowing. Let me finish with, uh, I started with North Korean Hannah. Well, she, um, uh, she ended up getting out of prison, um, miraculously really through much prayer, and she moved back to China and to be um, with the church where she became a Christian. And despite her history of suffering, you'd think she would have um, sort of shrunk away into a room and just lived out the rest of her days quietly. But no, not this Hannah. She knew this Christ was worth risking everything for. She had at this stage lost her husband. She had also lost her son. Well, she hasn't seen her son for 20 years. But she lived near a prison camp in China. She found a very small She described it as a small hole which perhaps a cat or dog um, could get through. And she found this this hole in a wall through into the prison camp. And one day she she sneaked in, basically, into this hole. And she started to tell the prisoners there about Jesus. And then, from there on, for the next uh, few weeks and months, she led a Bible study with five or six others who had become Christians from her telling about this wonderful Jesus. You see, he is worth sharing This lovely, wonderful lady that has seen such sorrow knew it. He is worth it. He is worth everything. Well, can I encourage you, please speak to me afterwards if you don't know him and you want to find out more. I would love it. It's a cold evening. I'm stuck out there shaking hands in the cold. I'd love a warm conversation. So please uh, do chat to me afterwards. Let's pray as we close. Our Father God of unsearchable greatness, sin has forfeited your favor. It has twisted good into malice and evil. It has banished us from your presence. It has exposed us to the curse of death. And we cannot deliver ourselves and would be in despair 
without you. But the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And we, as we say sorry to you tonight for our rejection of you, casting you off in our state of uncleanness, we pray that you would lift our shamed heads to look to the cradle and to look to the cross that we may live with complete confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord and that through his incarnation, through his death and victorious resurrection, we are completely forgiven and have nothing to fear. And we pray tonight, Father, give us hearts of praise and worship and may his shed blood make us more thankful for your mercies, more humble for your correction, more zealous in your service, more watchful against temptation, more content in our circumstances and more useful to others. And through Jesus' wonderful and mighty name we pray, amen.